The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you for the next 30 minutes. As always, an open, frank conversation about gambling addiction and mental health as well. As you know, May is Mental Health Month. Month, and we'll work towards that over the course of the next couple Saturdays as well. Joining me as always from the Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey, better known to you at home as 1-800-GAMBLER or just 800-GAMBLER, that's Dan Trelaro. Danny, good morning. How you been? I'm doing great, Craig. Good morning. How are you? Doing really well. And uh, pleased to have uh, on the phone from Nevada today, uh, Ted. Ted is a compulsive gambler as well and is kind enough to share his story with us today. Ted, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, so let me uh, work kind of backwards. Uh, I assume that you're in uh, recovery and you have not uh, been actively gambling. So if you don't mind me asking, how long have you been clean? So I made my last bet on September 14th, 2007. So about 13 and a half years now. Great, great, great. And I assume uh, life has only gotten better as you've gotten farther away from that last bet. That's absolutely the case. Well, let, let's get into it a little bit. Your part of this show is, and I think the most powerful part of this show is sharing other people's stories. So people out there that may have not had any connection yet or may never have a connection to it understand kind of the depths of what gambling addiction looks like. How old were you when you first started, and what was your initial introduction into gambling? That's a, that's a great question. Well, like, like many people, I learned to gamble in my family, even though I probably didn't think of it as gambling at the time. And I was gambling by at least the age of 10, possibly earlier, but those are my earliest memories. Um, I lived in Lubbock, Texas uh, with my father at the time, and a lot of our family vacations used to be driving from Lubbock, Texas to Rio Doso, New Mexico, where there's a, uh, a horse racing track, and we would camp in the mountains outside of town. Uh, I'd later come to believe it was probably so my dad could save money on hotels so that he had more to gamble on the horses, but uh, be that as it may, it was a fun experience as a kid, and we would go into town and spend the whole day at the track, uh, and my dad would give each of the kids 20 bucks, and that was ours to use to gamble on the horses during the day. So while he was the one making the bets at the window, obviously, uh, you know, by that age, I already knew all of the jargon and how to read the history of the horses and the programs, and I'd tell my dad, uh, you know, which horses to, to make a bet on. And so I imagine on, yeah. as, a, as a kid, that had to be pretty cool, like larger-than-life cool, right? Uh, absolutely right. It was kind of a bonding experience with my dad, and that that excitement, you know, of the uh, occasional win and and winning some money and uh, what was pretty exciting. So it starts off innocently enough. You know, your dad likes to gamble, so he brings his kids with him. Were was there a point when you can remember a pivotal point where you then started doing it without your dad? Um, well, yeah, when I was a teenager, my dad taught me how to play poker. And by the time I was in high school, I was involved in a, in a weekly poker game. Uh, the first one with my father, actually, and a bunch of other university professors from Texas Tech, which is where my dad taught in the music department. And so that was another ego trip, right? As a, as a teenager to be playing with all of these guys who were 
you know, two to four times my age probably and, and with my dad. And But as uh, as I entered into college, I did get involved in a higher stakes game that did not involve my, my father. Um, at that point, looking back, I still had control of my gambling. And all I mean when I say that is I took only what I could afford to lose to the game. And if I lost that, I didn't come back until I'd saved up enough uh, money to do that. And Somewhat perversely, uh, I, I won enough money in that game over time to move out of the house, get my own apartment. I had a full-ride scholarship to Texas Tech, uh, was able to quit my job at Pizza Hut, and so I was literally financing my life off this once-a-week poker game. And it See, that's wasn't what's, because, so, that's what's <laughs> so interesting to me. Yeah, I did the same thing. You know, I funded my lifestyle back in college by playing cards. Wow. You know, and then... Uh, and you know, found a college bookie, and you know, there's sports betting as well. And what I'm what I'm trying to figure out, and Dan, let me bring you in on this part of the conversation. You know, there was a point, I, you know, like you, where I did do a quote unquote responsibly with really, I think, great discipline. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't wager more than I had. I didn't I never put, you know, uh, rent money at risk, that kind of thing. And I was always in control. Now, there came a point in my life where I went off the complete deep end, which you know I'll get to with you in a second. But, Dan, is that a, a typical refrain where there was a point where we or the average compulsive gambler did do it with discipline and responsibly? Yeah, we often see that start. And, you know, Ted, I, I just shake my head and smile as I think about the similarities in our story. And once again, you know, Craig, we hear family, age of onset, age 10, a good experience. It starts normally, right? It's a fun time. It it feels really good. And we tuck those memories away. And our body, there's a a good book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kook. And it talks about how your body keeps track of all experiences in life. And sometimes at some point for some people, the body keeps track of that, and when life throws a curveball, whether it's trauma, whether it's PTSD, something we don't know how to deal with, we tend to turn back to that good time, that gambling. Right. And when we start using gambling as a fun time and it turns into an escape from a problem, that's when you start to see it really start to turn. And I, we hear this story so many times from people who start gambling at an early age that there's this switch that seems to go off later in life and all of a sudden, it starts to be something that they just can't turn off. Yeah, I mean, so it does seem like that we have that in common. So, Ted, so you're gambling responsibly. You're, you're, you're moving out. Things in life are looking up. You're playing a weekly game. You're making money, et cetera. And then, obviously, there does come a point where that kind of turns. What was that moment for you? That's right. So uh, out of graduate school, I got offered a job uh, in Las Vegas, which I'm still fortunate to have today. And that was back in 1991. And uh, my big fantasy uh, on moving to Vegas was uh, about entering the World Series of Poker, which at that time, most people, you know, unless you lived in Vegas or unless you were a hardcore poker player, you probably didn't know what that was. But it uh, essentially, the entry fee back then was the same as it is today, $10,000. And I thought, I'm going to save up enough money over a few years and enter that game uh, and see how I can do. And uh, ultimately, in the course of of, uh, 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 intending to save up that uh, money, uh, I would often, out of boredom, waiting for a seat to open up at a live table, uh, sit down at a video poker poker machine Hmm. and plunk away. And because I 
so rarely played them, it was years before I hit my first jackpot. But then one day I did. Uh, I hit $1,000 on a quarter machine, and less than a week later I hit another one. And uh, slowly my my thinking about gambling uh, changed, and then more quickly until the, the day came when I was pretty much almost exclusively playing video poker, uh, even though it made no rational sense to me at the time. It was um, interesting. Dan mentioned the trauma because, uh, you know, not only did I experience that in some of my parents' relationships as a child, but later on, I, after living in Vegas four or five years, I got hit by a really weird voice disorder. And all of a sudden, it was difficult to lecture. Um, I couldn't sing anymore. I'd been singing semi-professionally. And that was the first time looking back that I started to use gambling to uh, isolate myself and avoid talking to other people. Yeah, because one, um, you know, one of the things we all know about poker is one of your skills in being really good at it is the fact that you are playing against other real people. You know, reading them, knowing the odds, you know, knowing how to play cards, knowing how other people play them. So to go from that to playing you know, computer or video poker, you, you, you robbed yourself of whatever edge or advantage you might have. That's right. And in spite of the fact I, you know, I knew I was never going to beat a computer chip over the long run, and I, I generally yep. knew the odds. Uh, like I say, it made no rational sense to me even as it was happening. It really wasn't until I was into my recovery and looking back through, through the years that I began to understand some of these. Sure. Reasons. What Why? was the, if you don't mind, is there a pivotal, this was my lowest point? Well, sure, and that that didn't come until the uh, early 2000s, I think. Um, I had been uh, gambling with my uh, then-wife. We met each other in, I think, 2001. Uh, We each learned that the other liked to gamble a little bit. By this time, I had really kind of crossed that line into playing mostly video poker, and she preferred table games like Blackjack and Gal, and she'd want me to come play with her, uh, and she'd get upset with me if she felt I was holding the wrong cards, and I'd want her to come play video poker with me, and I'd get upset with her. And we recognized at a point that it was becoming a, a an impact both financially and emotionally on our relationship, and we decided to quit. And she was able to do that. Uh, I did for a few months, and then unbeknownst to her, went back out. And that was kind of the beginning of my hiding the fact I was gambling from my family. And over the course of a couple years, uh, I came clean a couple times on my own, uh, but each year uh, I went back, and each year the the hidden debt was about three times what it had been the previous year. And uh, finally, that last year, and uh, I, I didn't mention I'm a musician on the side, in addition to being a, a research scientist in my professional life, and and uh, I had commissioned a a cello to be uh, built. I'd been playing the same junker cello since I'd been in college and was excited to be getting this new cello. And it took the guy almost seven years to to build. And um, wow. in my last year of gambling craziness, he called up. He said, Ted, it's finally ready. Uh, why don't you drive up to Reno from Vegas? I'll drive down from Boise, which is where he was built and uh, based. And uh, I got this beautiful cello. Um, I had a check to, to pay him. And it was really just uh, convenience checks from hidden credit cards. Uh, but he said, don't buy it yet take it back to Vegas, try it out. The climate's a little bit different than in a couple of weeks you can send me that check. Well, in the meantime, I, I brought that back to Vegas, showed my colleagues, was very excited. And literally the day before I was going to send them that check is the day my, my then wife um, doing an online credit check, totally unrelated to her 
suspicions of my gambling came across all of this hidden credit card debt and confronted mm. me about it. And um, as part of my beginning to make amends to my family, I agreed not to buy that cello that I'd been waiting for wow. for seven years. So that was a wow. kind of one of the worst and best days of my life. Well, let me stop you right there. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll continue on. This is Hello, My Name is Craig. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you, uh, as always, uh, open, frank conversation. That's what it is about gambling addiction. Ted is on the line from Vegas, and of course, Dan Trelaro from 800-GAMBLER. So as you were telling the story, Teddy, you uh, have this uh, cello that was, you know, took seven years to build. You finally get it, mm. and then you walk away from it because you kind of get caught by it, that you have a whole bunch of debt and uh, that you've become a gambling addict. Uh, were you in denial about it? Did you uh, lie about it? Did you hide from it? Or did you, uh, from that day, bang, you'll commit yourself to uh, living without gambling? Like, how, was, how was that part of the journey? So uh, from that point on, uh, yes, I could kind of see that as the beginning of my true journey in, re- into recovery. But the the two years prior to that was a, a combination of, of coming clean to the fact that I had been gambling, but then going back out, hiding it again, trying desperately really to get back to that time that I remembered so well over most of my gambling career, which was, you know, being able to control it and set those limits. Um, so I couldn't imagine that I wouldn't be able to get back to that previous time. It just made no sense to me. It was very confusing. And I think that's why it took me so long to to acknowledge I wasn't going to be able to stop on my own because I, I had been able to gamble responsibly for so long. Yeah. And that, that's the rub, right, Dan, that, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, it's one of the reasons you know, I say on this show all the time, we don't espouse any beliefs because if you're a GA guy or gal, it's abstinence. That's the only answer. But there are mm-hmm. other people, we and we know other people, who frankly have been able to kind of conquer the addiction and don't believe in abstinence. Right, Dan? Sure. Yeah, we've, we've heard that uh, even harm reduction. So we, we have heard that even harm reduction for some people works. I know, again, and, and everyone walks their own journey. For me... It's abstinence only. I tried harm reduction, failed miserably. I kept tripping over my own two feet every day. Uh, yet I've also worked with people who call the 800 Gambler Helpline, and we, we send them to our treatment providers. And, you know, in the case, for example, of an 85-year-old female who called, didn't have much time left on this earth. She wanted to gamble every day. They started working with her so she still gambled a little bit, but also spend time with family. So it wasn't abstinence. We weren't going to have an 85-year-old female with a short time horizon go to counseling and therapy and, and have abstinence. So it, it all depends on the needs of the individual. It's always client-focused. Yeah, and one of the things I, I like focusing on the show, Ted, is that guys like you, knock on wood, me eventually, and you know, Dan as well, that the story doesn't end poorly. That for those that are maybe just starting their journey or about to go to their first GA meeting or about to have that very tough, you know, open, frank, honest conversation with a loved one where they admit that they've got a problem, that you can get to a place where life is really, really good. And it sounds like you're at that place, yeah? Uh, Absolutely, for sure. You know, it was pretty scary when I... Uh, went into some of my first meetings and and uh, and shared, but uh, 
I, I can remember the first time I, I outed myself publicly and um, after I'd gone through a, an intensive outpatient program here in Vegas and kind of reconnected with uh, GA meetings during that time. Um, you know, I decided I was interested in volunteerism uh, as a way to replace some of the time I'd been getting my fix out in the casinos. And uh, I was attracted to this program called CASA, which is Court Appointed Special Advocates. And this is to volunteer mm. to represent kids who are in the foster care system as a result of abuse and neglect. And uh, during the course of that training, uh, we went over an, uh, a unit on addiction, which is affecting so many parents who have their kids removed from the household. And there was not a single uh, bit of discussion about gambling. It was all about substances. And I, I asked the instructor if I could speak a little bit to gambling because I was a little bit appalled that there wasn't any discussion. And so I, I told a very brief um, uh, version of, of my own story. And uh, the sky didn't fall. And not only that, my, the very first case I was assigned turned out to involve a gentleman that they were uh, uh, treating for an alcohol use disorder in hopes of reunifying his son with him. But he also had uh, an incredible amount of debt. He had a good job with the post office and also a second job working somewhere else, and yet their house had been foreclosed on. And I asked him about gambling, and he, he said that I was the first person to ever even ask him about that. And it turned out he had a you know, high-level player's card that I was familiar with because I'd had that same level, and I knew how much money he had to be putting through the machines to achieve that membership. And so that was a a great outcome that I happened to be assigned that case and uh, uh, had that discussion. And as I um, became more and more interested in, in my personal and professional life, I uh, attended a state conference here in Nevada. And at that conference, I met, met Judge Cheryl Moss, who yep. folks in New Jersey, yep. New Jersey will be very familiar with. And uh, she was working in the family courts here at the time and talking about how she ran into this uh, issue in some of her family cases, and she introduced me to Carol O'Hare, who's the executive director of the Nevada Council here. And uh, first, I started volunteering with that organization, and now I'm a, for the last six or seven years, a, a consultant to that organization, helping them administer some of their programs, and I even developed a couple for them. And Dan, one thing we should make clear, you know, we people that you know we've met together here uh, in New York, New Jersey, et cetera. It's not, uh, you know, some people always say, well. You know, how do you replace the time you spend gambling? You know, find a hobby, you know, fish, garden. It's not so much that as as enjoying the kind of extra mental space you have by not gambling, right, Dan? We don't always have to replace yeah. minute for minute, right? A hundred percent. You know, the one thing that people don't see and, and all three of us live through is the preoccupation, thinking about the next time we'll gamble, how we're going to get the money, how I'm going to get. It's like all the constant thoughts. But it's, it's creating that new life where we, we have this free space. You know, for, uh, you know, Craig, you've talked about this, where you have so much free mental space. You know, I, I know myself, I feel so much more productive during the course of a day. I can think clearly, you know, and I'm very thankful for that. And it's having that gratitude and just having that mental space freed up is a huge, huge blessing. But real quick, though, Ted, one thing you mentioned that's just kind of annoying at me, too, is that, you know, you're in Nevada all, or Nevada, I believe, as they say, right, all that's this right. time. And, you know, I know out east here when someone says they have a gambling problem and you're talking to drug and alcohol counselors, there's still this stigma, right? Gambling has this stigma. Like, why are you greedy? Why can't you just stop? Yeah, you're in a state that's had some of the biggest, most long-lasting gambling venues 
forever. Is there a difference in perception of how gambling palms are received out there versus maybe how they are over here in the East? Well, um, that's a that's a good question. I'm not sure if the perception is different, although the uh, some of that perception comes from, I think, the, the outside recovery community. Nobody can believe that those of us in recovery can actually live in Las Vegas and have a normal life with all of the gambling opportunities uh, that are around. Uh, and so, you know, I... I, I actually tell folks this is one of the best places to be in recovery because there's so much support. We have over 100 mm. GA meetings a, a week here, so any flavor you like wow. you can get to. We have several intensive outpatient programs. Uh, and so it's, it's a tough place to be if you are nurturing any kind of uh, addiction and you're in that cycle, but it's a fantastic place to be uh, in recovery. So I like to dispel some of that myth and and some people I've sponsored in the program, uh, some guys will say, I just need to get out of Vegas and then I'll be okay. And I gently remind them that some form of gambling is legal in 48 of 50 states and, you know, try to get better here first. Then if you still want to leave Vegas, you can and you'll take that recovery yeah. with you. Well, that's the thing. Vegas isn't special anymore, right? You can gamble wherever the hell you want now. Pretty much. You know, I mean, and, and you yeah. don't even have to leave your house to do it. You know, if it's just the action, you know, that some people crave, it's... It's right there on the phone, and you know the marketing campaigns have gotten dirtier oh. and dirtier, and yep. more aggressive as you know we all knew they would. You know, so it's no surprise. But yeah, your know, Vegas has lost its allure only because I can sit in my living room right now and I can gamble twenty four seven. Which brings me to a, a quick question, uh, two last questions for you, Ted, before I let you go. At the height of the addiction. Give people an idea of how many hours a day you could sit there in front of a video poker machine and play. Wow, it's a, gr a great question. And the answer to that um, depended on was my wife out of town for some reason, because then I could you know, sit there for 24 hours. Uh, I was doing, in, in the last year or so, I was doing most of my gambling during time I was supposed to be at work because I could uh, hide that pretty well. My supervisor lived in a different city. I had a number of employees working for me that I could delegate a lot of my tasks to so I could often get the minimum amount of work I needed to get done, uh, take off uh, under the pretense of, of needing to have an off-site meeting of some kind, and literally be gone most of the day. Uh, sometimes I'd call in sick to work, and as far as my wife knew, I was at work, and as far as my colleagues knew I was homesick, and I'd be desperately at the casino trying to win back enough money to pay off this hidden debt. So that was a pretty crazy time. And uh, I have to ask, now that you're in a good place and uh, you've been there for uh, you know more than 10 years, uh, are you able to sing? Do you still play music as a, a, a part of your life again? Uh, it, absolutely, yeah, both ways. I'm a, a professional cellist with the Las Vegas Philharmonic on the side, and when we mm. discovered Wait, hold on, the hold on. On the side? <laughs> that's a, a that's a side gig. <laughs> yes, that's a that's a side gig, um, and uh, I do I am able to to sing. It's it's mostly karaoke stuff this day because the the treatment involves injection of Botox into my uh, vocal cord muscles, and so I've got a more or less effective singing voice for six to eight months out of the year. But unfortunately, uh, shows won't schedule their 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 uh, you know 
schedule around my voice. So, <laughs> All right, well, listen, we appreciate your time very much, and I, I, yeah, I love the fact that you know you got through it, and like we said, life is good and life can be good, and you're enjoying everything it has to offer. So, oh, at the end of the day, to me, that's always the take out of these conversations that it sucks while you're going through it, no doubt, and there's some very hard conversations and you know life changes you do have to make if you're going to do it for real. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel for everybody. So I appreciate uh, your time. Hopefully we'll be able to stay in touch. And as COVID allows it and we start attending a lot of these conferences uh, together, uh, I look forward to meeting you. And I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Dan, before we uh, end it, uh, this is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, May 20th, of course, is the big day of the month. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't let you kind of expand a little bit on uh, mental health and the impact that gambling addiction has on the mental health of not just the gambler, but obviously the uh, family and loved ones and how you deal with that and what advice you have uh, for people that you might be going through it right now. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you mentioned not just the gambler, but also the family member. You know, at our helpline at 800 Gambler, some of the things that we talk to people about, you know, how are you feeling? You know, mentally, how are you feeling? Because we know with gambling comes depression, mood disorder, anxiety, bipolar, et cetera. And, and sometimes we don't know if the gambling brought about those conditions or if those conditions existed before the gambling. And then the gambling helps relieve those conditions. So there's definitely a connection between the two. And that's for the gambler. But how about the loved ones, Craig? You know, when a gambler is now, you know, having an open, honest conversation, yeah, that's great for the gambler to get it off his or her chest. But now you're taking that burden and now you're placing it and you're sharing it with someone else who's being totally blindsided. And we really care for the loved ones because now they have to share this burden that they, quite frankly, didn't sign up for oftentimes. And we hear that described a lot. And they need the counseling and the support. So when people call our 800-GAMBLER helpline, whether it's the gambler, whether it's the loved ones, we have clinicians. We have certified gambling counselors in New Jersey, and we refer out to other states, whether it's New York or Pennsylvania or any other states where there's clinicians, to get people to help, not that they just need, but that they deserve, right? We don't want people to just get by surviving. We want them to learn how to thrive. You know, Ted was a great example because he went back ultimately to the things that he enjoyed when he was growing up, the music. He has a love of music. I mean, part-time in the Las Vegas Philharmonic, that's crazy. But he has a, such a love for music that he's returned to that, and he seems to be in a good space. And it's realizing that you know, mental health is a, daily, is a daily activity that we need to care for. Dr. Fong talked about that a few weeks ago. What are we doing today to keep our brain healthy? Are we eating? Are we sleeping? Right? What are we doing? Exercise. What are we doing to find joy and to laugh? That should be a daily practice in our lives, not just in May, but year-round. Yeah, and there's an old uh, saying in therapy. If you ask somebody that you think is having some uh, some difficulty mental health-wise, and if you ask them how they're doing and they say fine, they have a problem. Because uh, there's a belief in uh, a lot of these uh, mental health uh, organizations that fine merely stands for effed up insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So yes. if you hear the Steven word Tyler. if you hear the word fine, it's not necessarily fine. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. And uh, that, again, be that sensitive. Was an song. Yeah, that's true. That's also true. So just be yeah. sensitive to our mental health, not just in May, but all the time because it's a serious issue. And we've a lot of people that are struggling with it. Dan, always appreciate it. Eight hundred gambler, the council on compulsive gambling in New Jersey. We'll do it again next Saturday here on the fan. Appreciate your time, pal. 
Thanks, Craig. Have a great week. Evan Roberts is next. Thank you. Hello, my name is Craig. Every Saturday at 930, right here on The Fan.